Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Hello, hello, hello. Okay, can I just tell you how exciting it is to be back to doing this podcast? I had forgotten just what an enormous gift it is to my own reading. You know, when I'm making these regularly, I find myself making note of every particularly powerful passage I come across, pausing on it and rolling it over in my mind and digging around it to see if it might be something that I want to include here. You know, obviously there are far more incredible bits and bobs out there than I could cover in a lifetime of doing this, but it does add just one more layer of meaning and depth to my own reading, and I am so grateful for that. Thank you for continuing to listen and be so supportive and for sharing it with others. This little spike in listeners these last few weeks has been super energizing and inspiring for me, and I have you to thank for that, so, you know, keep it up. And if you feel so inclined, I do always really appreciate it when you leave a rating or a review. It helps the podcast get found by new listeners, which is, you know, awesome. So thank you again. Now, today's passage is from Jhumpa Lahiri's short story collection, Interpreter of Maladies. In my own writing life, I have been on a short story kick for about the last year, so I have been soaking up short story collections like nobody's business in, you know, some hope of absorbing the craft genius of everyone from Alice Munro to Dana Johnson to George Saunders. And Jhumpa Lahiri's collection here is one that I have come back to time and time and time again savoring each story and really trying to just unravel the way she creates these characters that have just so much depth and complexity and the way she so often makes setting feel almost like a character in her stories. These stories are rich and layered and an absolute gift and I cannot recommend this collection highly enough. Narrowing to a single passage felt pretty much impossible but as so often happens I just had to put a stake in the ground and pick one of my many favorites so that I could dive into her work with you here. Now, while there aren't any big obvious spoilers here, this passage does give away the ending to this particular story. And so if that would interfere with your enjoyment of her work, I do encourage you to go read the story first and then come back here. One of the lovely things about short stories is that they are just that short. So go treat yourself to a little fiction snack and then come back and finish this episode. So here we go from her story, The Third and Final Continent. This is from Jhumpa Lahiri's Pulitzer Prize winning short story collection, Interpreter of Maladies.
Whenever we make that drive, I always make it a point to take Massachusetts Avenue in spite of the traffic. I barely recognize the buildings now, but each time I am there, I return instantly to those six weeks as if they were only the other day, and I slow down and point to Mrs. Croft's street, saying to my son, here was my first home in America, where I lived with a woman who was 103. Remember, Mala says and smiles, amazed as I am, that there was ever a time that we were strangers. My son always expresses his astonishment, not at Mrs. Croft's age, but at how little I paid in rent, a fact nearly as inconceivable to him as a flag on the moon was to a woman born in 1866. In my son's eyes, I see the ambition that had first hurled me across the world. In a few years, he will graduate and pave his way alone and unprotected. But I remind myself that he has a father who is still living, a mother who is happy and strong, Whenever he is discouraged, I tell him that if I can survive on three continents, then there is no obstacle he cannot conquer. While the astronauts, heroes forever, spent mere hours on the moon, I have remained in this new world for nearly 30 years. I know that my achievement is quite ordinary. I am not the only man to seek his fortune far from home, and certainly I am not the first. Still. There are times I am bewildered by each mile I have traveled, each meal I have eaten, each person I have known, each room in which I have slept. As ordinary as it all appears, there are times when it is beyond my imagination. Mm, Isn't that fantastic? Okay, I, as you may guess, have so much to say here. Now, I included the first part of the quote mostly for context because the meat of what I want to talk about today is in the first or in, is in the final few sentences. But before I get there, I do want to talk just a little bit about two ideas from the first part and also acknowledge that a writer of Jhumpa Lahiri's caliber does not include words or sentences in her short stories that don't serve an important purpose. I don't have time here today to talk about every single one of these word choices and sentences, more's the pity, but do know that there is a delight to be found in really getting curious and giving that fact some consideration and just digging around there. Okay, so first, our narrator says that whenever he returns to this area of Massachusetts Avenue, he's returned instantly to the six weeks he spent there decades before, quote, as if they were only the other day. And then he has this moment with his wife, Mala, where they share this amazement that there was ever a time that they were strangers to one another. Mm, This is the magic of time and memory, isn't it? The way our connections to a place and time can be forged and the way that a song or smell, or in this case, sights, related to a memory can call it up and take us there instantly. So in an April 2020 Science Direct journal article that I will, of course, link in the show notes, the authors suggest that there is data to link our oculomotor system, in other words, our eye movements, to both the formation and retrieval of memories. Obviously, the science goes into far more depth than I could cover here, even if I were a scientist, which I am decidedly not. But to, you know, grossly generalize and summarize the article, There seems to be a vast structural and functional network linking the oculomotor and hippocampal memory systems. 
meaning that our eye movements and our formation of memory as well as our retrieval of memory are linked. This is cool, right? Okay, so I'm way out of my depth when it comes to brain science, so please go check out the linked article if that piques your interest. But I always love getting at least a general sense of why and how things we know to be true from our experience of the world and our lives work. Science is awesome. Now here, our narrator is taken back not to just some random period in his life by these sites, but to a pivotal moment of profound change. He was new to the U.S., new to Boston, and newly married to a bride that he barely knew, who had herself only just arrived to join him. So when he makes this drive down Massachusetts Avenue, it's not solely general memory he's recalled to, but also the memory of himself at that turning point and of the relationship with Mala that would grow into the central relationship of his life. I have a deep fondness for remembering beginnings and the discoveries that happen there, not only in my actual life, but it's something that I'm really always moved by in movies and literature. I am an unapologetic rereader, and one of the great pleasures that I take from rereading is the gift of revisiting the characters at the very start of a story that I've actually walked through them with them already to revisit them before the trials and the losses of the book change them. And even when those changes are for the good, there is something really moving to me about recalling where they began. So this remembering on the part of this narrator is something I find so powerful, and it immediately brings to mind the places that mark my own beginnings and prompts me to recall you know, meeting my husband Justin for the first time, the process of moving from strangers to friends to more. We all have these places and these kinds of memories and these layers of our stories are full of such richness. Now, the second aspect of this first part of the passage that I want to touch briefly is where our narrator points these places from he and Mala's beginnings out to his son. He says, points to Mrs. Croft Street saying to my son, here was my first home in America where I lived with a woman who was 103. And then he goes on later to say, my son always expresses his astonishment, not at Mrs. Croft's age, but at how little I paid in rent, a fact nearly as inconceivable to him as a flag on the moon was to a woman born in 1866. Now, the thing I want to note here isn't actually particularly revolutionary. It's simply the gap between the generational experiences. The narrator is a father speaking to his son and pointing out what he sees as important to their own family story, but also acknowledges Mrs. Croft, who was 103 years old when his life brushed hers for a moment. The narrator has a line a page earlier than the passage that I shared here where he says, Mrs. Croft's was the first death I mourned in America, for hers was the first life I had admired. She had left this world at last, ancient and alone, never to return. I'm so tempted to get distracted here and talk about the second half of that sentence, but I'll revisit or I'll resist and come back to the first half here where it says hers was the first death I mourned for hers was the first life I had admired. It's the combination of this intersection between the life and impact of this 103 year old woman on the narrator and his attempt at conveying something of that experience to his son 
And then his son being astonished not by the 103-year-old woman, but by the $8 a week in rent that the narrator paid. A similar astonishment to what Mrs. Croft had expressed over the moon landing when the narrator had first met her. And it exquisitely captures that gap while also simultaneously demonstrating this basic commonality. I just love this. Okay, so as much as I want to dive deeper into this and the part about the narrator seeing in his son's eyes the ambition that had first hurled him, the narrator, across the world. God, I love that. I'm going to restrain myself because what I really want to talk about are these last lines because, oh man, they are so great. Let's look at them again. He says, after reminding us that he has survived on three continents, while the astronauts, heroes forever, spent mere hours on the moon, I have remained in this new world for nearly 30 years. I know that my achievement is quite ordinary. I am not the only man to seek his fortune far from home, and certainly I am not the first. Still, there are times I am bewildered by each mile I have traveled, each meal I have eaten, each person I have known, each room in which I have slept. As ordinary as it all appears, there are times when it is beyond my imagination. These final sentences absolutely annihilate me. Let's take it line by line. He says, while the astronauts, heroes forever, spent mere hours on the moon, I have remained in this new world for nearly 30 years. At the end of this sentence, he refers to remaining in, quote, this new world for nearly 30 years. And I think there is something deeply telling in his continued reference to this world he inhabits, still feeling like a new world. Nearly 30 years, but still a new world. I can't help but wonder about this, right? Is, is it because he still feels like an outsider here, still not at home? Is it because he is still, after 30 years, continuing to discover and explore this new world to him? Is it both? What's that combination look like? And in the page before this passage, he references he and Mala having decided to grow old there in Boston, that their son is in school at Harvard, and that they visit India, but will remain in the U.S. for the remainder of their lives. And I think this is where the comparison to the astronauts strikes me so powerfully. They spend hours on the moon in this inhospitable environment so foreign in every way to the planet they call home. And our, narrate, our narrator acknowledges that this is heroic. There doesn't feel to me like there is any snideness or sarcasm when the narrator calls the astronauts heroes forever. It actually feels pretty genuine, both personally and in the cultural memory. But then by his word choice, he indicates that this new world feels as foreign to him after nearly 30 years as he imagines the moon did to those astronauts, that the distance from home and what is understood, what is safe and comfortable and hospitable is comparable. 30 years of living on what might as well be the moon and figuring out how to build a life there, figuring out how to breathe and move in a place that has no real gravitational pull of its own. This is incredible, right? And it's that which makes this next sentence such a gut punch to me. I know that my achievement is quite ordinary, he says. My achievement is quite 
ordinary. Now, by Webster's definition, the word ordinary means to be expected in the normal order of events or of a common quality, rank, or ability. To be expected in the normal order of events or of a common quality, rank, or ability. He says that his achievement is quite ordinary, which is such a true and yet staggering sentiment, right? That the achievement of building a life of nearly 30 years on what is the equivalent of the moon is quite ordinary is a shocking thing to try to wrap our head around, right? And yet this is what every immigrant who has ever come to this country has had to figure out is quite ordinary in terms of the sheer number of humans who have have achieved this moon living, right? So when I was in my 20s, I took my very first trip abroad, and on that trip we visited some friends of my now husband's. The couple is Swiss and lived in Switzerland, and while Debbie had lived in the U.S. for a while and was fully fluent in English, Benny could speak English entirely sufficiently, certainly far better than I spoke Swiss German, that's for damn sure. But his vocabulary and mastery was far more limited than Debbie's. At one point during our visit, there was this exchange, and Debbie said very offhandedly that it was such a shame that we didn't speak German because Benny was so much funnier in German than he could be at that time in English. And I'm embarrassed to admit now that that was the first time it had ever occurred to me that the nuances of personality, the fullness of how we express ourselves and our humor, our beliefs, empathy, how we are able to be known by others depends so heavily on language and fluency and arguably on cultural context. Something as basic as humor are lost in translation, literally. And our narrator in this passage captures this sentiment and more in this acknowledgement of his ordinary achievement of surviving on three continents, of surviving three decades on the moon. And on such a smaller scale, who has not felt some variation of this, right? Who hasn't moved to another region of the country or just even ended up in like a social gathering or professional environment where you looked around and thought, where am I right now? I mean, heck, I have a dear, dear friend who lives a very different lifestyle than I do. And there have been a handful of moments over the years where there have been some like long, silent pause in the conversation after one of us says something and the other has absolutely zero idea what we're talking about. And these moments can make it feel like we are living on two entirely separate planets. Now, while hilarity may ensue from these moments with my friend, more often than not, finding ourselves in situations where we feel like an outsider, where we're the only one who doesn't get the joke, recognize the food, know how to catch the train, how to dress appropriately or respond to a question, This is isolating and lonely and terribly difficult to manage, especially without losing some part of what feels like makes us us, right? So the narrator's use of the word achievement here feels huge and well-earned, and the small bit of pride that shines through it absolutely deserved. The achievement may be ordinary in the sense of others also having done it, as he says in the following two lines. I am not the only man to seek his fortune far from home, and certainly I am not the first. 
But for every person who has ever done it in any era and in any country, it truly is extraordinary. And before I move on from this, I do want to think about this in one more very broad way. Ordinariness does not diminish our achievements. We do not have to be the first or the only or the last or the whatever, fill in the blank, in order for something we achieved to count. For something to feel like an achievement means that you did something that was hard for you. Okay, to be clear, I know that we could go down an entire rabbit hole of external expectations and being achievement-driven, blah, 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 but that is not what this passage is implying or what I want to focus on here. Please note that I am using the word achievement here to mean something accomplished that you feel proud of or that was scary or hard or required something of you that you had to dig deep to find. And the point I want to make is that while an achievement may seem ordinary because it's been achieved by many other people on many other occasions, it is still special because it is yours. Celebrating our achievements and those of others, no matter how routine they may seem, is vital. Okay, so I want to keep going. Next, he says, Still, there are times I am bewildered by each mile I have traveled, each meal I have eaten, each person I have known, each room in which I have slept. Mm, That is my second favorite line of this entire passage. I just find this so, so beautiful and moving. Okay, can we just pause right here and recognize that this is it right here. This is a rich and acknowledged life. The word astonished is used earlier in the passage, and that's what the sentence feels like to me. Awe and astonishment. There is such courage and, dare I say it, curiosity implied here. This narrator is looking at his life, at his achievements, and also the simple winding paths of his existence, of the people he has known, the rooms he has slept in, the meals he has eaten, and he is bewildered by them perplexed. And I can't help but wonder if that bewilderment, the confusion implied by that word choice, isn't connected to the use of the word ordinary. Because really, it is impossible to consider our lives, even those that didn't include surviving on three continents, of learning to live for 30 years on the moon, to be mundane when viewed in light of just these things. The meals eaten, the people known, the rooms in which we have slept, the miles we have traveled, whether those miles were literal or figurative or both. And to consider this fully, we have to bring in this final sentence, the one that just leaves me dead on the floor. He says, as ordinary as it all appears, there are times when it is beyond my imagination. This is everything. This is the point that every mindfulness workshop and self-help guru and country music song is trying to say over and over and over. That when we are paying attention, our real lived lives, as ordinary as they may appear, are often beyond our imagination. You know, going back to that definition of ordinary, it is utterly within the normal order of events to share an amazing meal with friends or family that creates a sense of place and rootedness and belonging 
or to eat something that takes us right back to our uncle's restaurant when we were kids or that last summer that we and our siblings caught the ice cream man on our bikes before we began to leave childhood behind. It is perfectly within the normal order of events to meet your newborn child for the first time or to catch an echo of a loved one in, I don't know, a nephew's laugh. But these are the moments that are also beyond imagining. And there is an argument to be made that it's in their ordinariness that makes them so real and felt and connective. I mean, who hasn't felt that? That sense for a brief second in the midst of passing a dish at a dinner table or laughing with a friend on the phone or taking a walk in the sunshine where the awe catches us for a moment and we feel knocked flat by how wild and beyond imagination the life that we are living is that it exists that we exist and that we have traveled these miles and eaten these meals and known these people and slept in these rooms and to me that is the most bewildering part how often it seems to me that that is precisely that it is the precisely the ordinariness that is so extraordinary the most mundane moments that fill my world with unspeakable magic, even when those moments are hard ones. You know, in this passage, the narrator has just referred to spending nearly 30 years in this new world of having survived on three continents. There is nothing here to imply that his life has been a cakewalk, that he is astonished by all, you know, the ease he's had. On the contrary, right? He's astonished by the miles he's traveled. There is just such an exquisite and beautiful acknowledgement of the intense awe that we can have of our regular, real, ordinary lives here and the ways in which they are daily beyond our imaginations, how extraordinary they are, no matter how ordinary they may appear. So let's just soak this in one more time. I'm going to say it again. He says, Still, there are times I am bewildered by each mile I have traveled, each meal I have eaten, each person I have known, each room in which I have slept. As ordinary as it all appears, there are times when it is beyond my imagination. Mm, Okay. So again, that is from the story, The Third and Final Continent by Jhumpa Lahiri from her amazing short story collection, Interpreter of Maladies. I seriously cannot recommend this book strongly enough. I will say it again. I've really come to appreciate collections like this, short stories or essays that I can read one at a time and let soak into my bones as I go about my business. You know, when life feels particularly full, it can be a way to still feel connected to our reading lives, even, you know, when I'm not in a great place to hold a larger story like a novel in my head. As always, I have linked this book in my show notes at cindygivinoli.com backslash podcast. Okie dokie. So in this week's listener contribution, Nyla M. is sharing a quote from The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois by Honoré Fanon Jeffers. And she says, This is one of those books that I moved into fully, mind, body, and soul. While I was reading it, I was haunted by the uncanny sense that the world of this book was the real world, and everything else, going to work, folding laundry, food shopping, was the fictional one. 
I knew while I was reading that I wanted to share something from it with you, but had a really hard time picking just one thing. So I landed on this quote finally. And the quote, Even in a place of sorrow, time passes. Even in a place of joy. Do not assume that either keeps life from continuing. And Nyla says, In the last few years, I've lost both of my parents, and we all know how crazy the world has felt. Also, my daughter got married to a partner we love, my son graduated from high school and is thriving in a job he loves, and we got a puppy that makes us laugh every day. This line really captured for me how all of this felt mixed together. Mm, Nyla, I love this. That feeling of real life being the dream world and the book world being the real one is one that I am intimately familiar with. And this book totally did that to me as well. It is so good. Thank you so much for sharing not only this quote, but for the way it touched you and your life. This really means so much. Thank you. Alrighty, next week we will be looking at John Paul Brammer's Hola Papi, How to Come Out in a Walmart Parking Lot and Other Life Lessons. Until then, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.